Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans that is called Foundations of Our Faith. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, don't worry. The verses will be on the screen behind me. Uh, We also have some Bibles in the back of the room at our Connect table that we would love to give you. Uh, I just want to celebrate a couple things as you're finding Romans chapter 6. Uh, We're getting ready for our missional community groups to start uh, right here at the beginning of September. Yeah, it's exciting. So uh, we have 11 different groups throughout our city where uh, you can be in a small group. In addition to what happens here on Sunday morning, we have Christians all throughout our city that meet together, share a meal together, study God's word together, pray for one another. And so if you want to be a part of one of those groups, you can just scan that QR code that is in your worship guide and then sign up for one of those groups. Uh, I'm excited about those starting. We currently have 114 people registered for those groups, and I'm really excited that so many people are getting involved. Now, as you turn your attention to Romans 6, um, we're going to be talking about sanctification today. And one of the analogies that I came across just as I was thinking about this through the week was the analogy of traveling. Sometimes whenever you're asking somebody what their hobbies are or what they enjoy doing, they'll say, I love to travel. And that's always interesting to me because, honestly, traveling is a ton of hard work. I mean, it's more expensive than you normally plan for it to be, whether you're going across the country in an RV or, you know, you're taking flights and you're trying to catch your layovers. It's often uncomfortable, inconvenient. You're sitting next to people you don't know for hours on end in an airplane. And maybe you're on one flight just hoping that you've got enough time to run through the airport to catch your next flight. And then at the end of the day, you're hoping that your baggage will get there. I mean, whatever it is. You're hoping there won't be road delays. Traveling is a lot of hard work. And why do so many people, whenever asked, what do you love to do with your free time, with your extra money? They say, I love to travel. Why? It's because the destination is always well worth it. And we know that to be our own experience, don't we? That, yeah, a day full of travel might be stressful. But if the day after that, you're sitting on a beach somewhere, relaxing with your toes in the sand, it's totally worth it. Maybe sitting next to strangers in an undersized seat on an airplane for a couple hours is not the most comfortable thing in the world. And yet it's worth it to be able to see family members that maybe you only see a couple times a year. Uh, Being in a confined place in an RV or a compact car all day traveling across the country is worth it. Whenever you step foot into the Green Canyon, those wide open spaces are breathtaking. Traveling is difficult, but it's worth it. Because the destination is worth it. You see, Paul is going to talk about sanctification today. The process in the Christian life where after you trust in Christ, you're gradually changed. The sin within your heart has lost its power. Its presence is being uprooted. Jesus in John 15 calls it a pruning that takes place in the Christian life. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. No. What is this gradual process that has worked out in us where we become holy as God is holy? Paul describes it here as sanctification. And it's a lot like traveling and it often takes longer than expected. There are delays along the way. There are a lot of other people involved far more than ourselves and the destination is always worth it. But maybe you're sitting there and you're a Christian. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, why would I want to spend the rest of my life seeking to honor and obey God? 
to apply his commands to my life. Maybe you're a new believer and you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, if all I need to go to heaven one day and to avoid hell is to place my faith in Christ, then why would I work hard to study scripture and to attend church every Sunday? Why would I do all of these things in my life that are kind of the process of sanctification whenever that kind of seems like a lot of effort and energy if I can get to heaven just by faith alone? Now, the heart that would say that is problematic to begin with, and yet even mature Christians in the room can admit that the process of sanctification often requires a lot and has you wondering, okay, now now what is the destination that I'm headed for again? Now, I want to just give you six quick things, and uh, I say quick, right? This is almost the blog post before the sermon, so just get ready. Uh, but, But the first reason that sanctification is worth it is for our communion with God. I mean, think about it. Those aspects of your sanctification, your growth in holiness is the experience of God. Yes, you have a relationship with God through faith in Christ alone. And yet, as you're studying scripture, you're meditating on it throughout the week, and it's almost as if that chapter from Ephesians come, comes alive in your lap as you're reading. Whenever you're speaking to God in prayer, and it's as if when your eyes are closed, you can reach out and touch him. Whenever you're sitting there with other believers and they say an encouraging word and you say, this is why the church is called the body of Christ, because the presence of Christ is felt in this very moment. You become to realize the truth of Psalm 1611, that in your presence there is fullness of joy. Sanctification is worth it because an experience of our communion with God. But, but not only that. It's, it's the understanding of how to use the unique gifts that God has given you. This is amazing. Once you become a Christian, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4 says that you have been given unique gifts. Ephesians 2.10 says that these are good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So some of you, you have the gift of administration. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the gift of service, the gift of generosity. And as you're reading through the Gospels and you look at the compassionate heart of Christ, the generous person becomes more generous. As you're, as you're reading Scripture or you're around other believers that are teaching you solid doctrine, the person with the gift of teaching is now sharpened to become a better teacher. And people around you begin to grow in your Bible studies, uh, in your workplace, in your family, as you're leading your children. Uh, the person who has, has the gifting of evangelism, as they're spending time in fervent prayer, they now have a greater zeal to share the gospel. We, we begin to see that sanctification is not only something that God does in us, but also that God does something through us to build up the church. The third reason that sanctification is so important is because it helps us to avoid the pain of sin. Right? It's, it's more than that, but it is at least that. We just read Psalm 32. David says, whenever I hid my sin from God, I felt it within my bones. My bones ached. It's as if his heart is out of joint. He says, the hand of God was so heavy upon me whenever I tried to live in sin and hide my sin from him that it felt like the sun of summer was scorching down upon my back. And some of us are are thinking, did he read my journal? Right? You've lived that, haven't you? Where, where there was just this sin that you were entertaining, and it, you, the hand of God felt heavy upon you. And it wasn't until you came to Christ afresh and like, Lord, thank you for saving me from the sin. I don't know what I've been doing. Help me. Please help. And sanctification distances you from that pain of sin. Yes, the, the power of sin has been relieved, and, and now the presence of sin is being pulled out of your life. 
Fourth, it provides the assurance of salvation, doesn't it? Sometimes we look at our lives and you're like, am I, like, am I really a Christian? Do I really have a relationship with God? And yet whenever you're able to look back at the past three, five years of your life, you say, you know what? I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I once was. And by God's grace, my desires have changed, my attitudes have changed, my actions are changed. And this is showing that the Holy Spirit is actually in me because holiness is actually being worked out through me. The fifth thing that I want you to see is, and I won't spend much time here, but it's an invitation to become human again. Now, this might be a little philosophical, but think about it. We're created in the image of God. Whenever sin entered into the world, the image of God was distorted in us. And so whenever we come to Christ and we're being sanctified, we're being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the Son of God. We are being conformed into the image of the one who is the Son of God. And thus, we are able to image God as we were intended to in creation. It's this, it's this growth. It's restoration through sanctification. And finally, sanctification is the will of God for you. How many of you right now, maybe you're starting a new school semester, maybe you just began a new job, maybe you're entering into a new stage of life, like that's where we're at. Our oldest is entering kindergarten, right? So I'm like, oh, like what's going on? My whole life is changing. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So you're sitting here thinking, who do I date? Who do I marry? Where do I go to school? What should my major be? What job should I apply for? Should we send our kid to that school? Should we homeschool? I don't know. And yet, right here, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, let me demystify the will of God for you. You know what it is? Sanctification. So as long as you're growing alongside a community of believers where they know you and you know them, and you're being shaped by the word of God, and you're serving, and you're living on mission, as long as you can see these fruits in your life, well, then you're right in the center of the will of God. And there's, other, there's freedom in those other things because the will of God for you is ultimately your sanctification. Now, I know this is a long intro, uh, but one of my mentors once told me that the best thing that you can do to help somebody build a boat is to give them a heart that longs for a life at sea. And so my, my hope here is that the difficult journey of sanctification would seem now, now more than ever well worth it. Because you're thinking, you know what? I want a deeper relationship with the Lord. I want that tainted presence of God that you're talking about. I want to see my gifts and change the lives of other people. I want to avoid the pain of sin. I want to live right smack dab in the center of God's will. And that's exactly what sanctification does for us. To summarize this whole sermon in a sentence would look something like this. That sanctification is the necessary desire and result of our justification. Sanctification is the necessary desire and result of our justification. Now, I know we're using words this morning that we don't normally use in our everyday vocabulary, but instead of changing them or modifying them or trying to contemporize them, the goal here is just to get so familiar with them that we're able to use uh, the same words that Scripture uses. Now, just to bring us back into the book of Romans, I want to remind you that Paul had never met the church in Rome before. He, he knew some of them, uh, but he had never visited before. And so this letter is kind of going before him to prepare the way for his visit. So for the first five chapters, he talks about our justification, that you are declared just, right with God based upon what Christ has done alone. That's your justification. But out of your justification comes sanctification, a gradual and dramatic process in which you are changed 
to where you, you flee from the power of sin, that sin is uprooted from your life, and you become more obedient to God. That's the process of sanctification. It is growth in spiritual maturity to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And that happens throughout the Christian life. Now, Paul is going to continue just to apply the gospel. Even though he's slightly changing the subject, he's not going to leave the gospel. Because what did he tell them in Romans 1? He said, I'm eager to come to you, church in Rome, Christians, to preach the gospel to you. You see, the gospel is not just for non-believers to become Christians. The gospel is what Christians need to be sanctified, to grow in their faith. And, and that's why whenever we, we see the gospel, we acknowledge that it's not only the front door to Christianity, but it is the entire house that we live our Christian lives in. And with that being said, I want to give you four principles that will guide our sanctification that will come out of Romans 6. Let's begin to look at those by reading verses 15 through 19 in chapter 6. Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let's pause there. The first principle that I want you to see that guides our sanctification is this, that freedom from the law isn't a license to sin. See, chapter 6, what we saw last week in chapter 6, verse 1, it begins with a question. Paul is saying, should we just sin so that grace would abound? That was the question that he asked. Should we just keep sinning if God is gracious? That way he can show more grace and we can worship him anymore for just how gracious he is. Paul says, no, you're dead to sin. You've been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. You're united to him. You shouldn't continue to live in sin. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gave a command. He says, don't let sin reign in your life anymore. And now present your, your entire life to God for righteousness. So the way that you use your time, the things that you think about, even the mundane things like your commute to work or the way that you use your phone can be presented to God as acts of worship that produce righteousness. Well, then in verse 14, we saw last week that Paul said something that might have been puzzling to some of the Jewish Christians in the room. He said, you're no longer under the law, but now you are under grace. And at first, that seems like a huge relief because the law is all of the commandments from the Old Testament. And then Jesus, he summarized all of those commandments in two ways. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And love people as yourself. And all of us are sitting here, as well as the Jewish Christians that were in the church of Rome, and we're saying, we cannot do that perfectly. And so whenever he says, hey, you're not under the law anymore, but now you are under grace, we breathe a sigh of relief. But then you're like, well, now I'm confused. Like, how do we live? Because at least as, as difficult as it was, at least I kind of knew how to live. Like, I should be trying to do these things. And now he just says, hey, you're not under the law, but now you're under grace. And so maybe people would say, well, if I'm not under the law, then is that just kind of a freedom to sin now that I'm under grace? And Paul says, no, by no means. 
Because you will either live for sin or you will live for God. You will do one or the other. Just freedom from the law doesn't mean a freedom to do whatever you want, which leads us to the second principle. Your behavior reveals who you belong to. Think about that for a moment. Your behavior reveals who you belong to. In verse 16, Paul asks another question. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. In verse 16, Paul has just biblically dismantled our culture's definition of freedom. Because most people would define being free as being able to do whatever you want, when you want, what you want, like that is human autonomy. But let me ask you a question. If you free a fish from water, does it feel free? No, it's flopping on the deck of the boat or on the beach and it needs to be back into water to thrive. If you free a train from the tracks, what happens? It screeches to a halt, or even worse, it crashes. What do we find? That true freedom is not essentially just doing whatever you want, being without limits. No, true freedom is found in living within the limitations of your design. And as creatures, we were created to be dependent. We were created to be independent. Not only God is independent, we were created to be dependent, and which leads Paul to this question because he says, you're going to depend on something. It is hardwired within your spiritual DNA to depend upon something. Are you submitting to the authority of sin to obey it, which ultimately leads to death, or are you submitting to Christ to be obedient to him, to produce more righteousness, which ultimately leads to eternal life? You see, everyone serves Something, And that's not popular. But you can see what you serve through what you trust or what you treasure. And Paul says everybody serves something. And here true freedom is found not in the absence of a master, but living in submission to the good and right master. That's why whenever Jesus gives the invitation, come and follow me, it is at the same time an invitation to lifelong submission and an invitation to receive life to the full. He says, come, follow me, submit to me because you will follow something. You'll be enslaved to something. You'll be under the authority of something. Now, in a strange turn of events this week, I was looking for an example of this and I stumbled upon the story of the pop star, Britney Spears. Go with me here, okay? So you might remember in 2008, she had this very public breakdown, and it was kind of this media spectacle. And her advisors told her what you need to do is you need to take your estate and your tour dates and your record contracts, and you need to put those under the authority of someone else so that you don't create any rash decisions that could possibly tank your career and have lasting impacts on your life. And so she took that advice, and she legally entered into a conservatorship where her father now had complete control of her estate, uh, the recording labels that she was a part of, the tour dates, all of that kind of stuff. And yet what happened over time is he began to use that authority for his own gain, and she couldn't get out of it. It's like almost impossible to legally absolve a conservatorship like this. And so she went to court, and she made the case, if I can't 
completely absolve this. If I have to be dependent upon someone, then can I transfer this authority to someone I trust? Can I transfer this to my accountant? A person who, who knows well what I desire, who, who knows well what, what is the best for me. And that happened and it was transferred and her, her life got significantly better. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, here Paul has just told us that you will be dependent upon someone. You will be under the authority of someone. And if that is the case, then why not be under the authority of one who has your best interests at heart? Why not call him master who is good, that we just sang about as good and loving, the one who is Lord and Savior, who is Christ? If you must be under someone's authority, don't submit to sin. It's Jesus who said, whoever commits sin is enslaved to sin, but whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And yet we all know the slavery of sin too well, don't we? Either we've been freed from the power of sin and we submit back to it again. Uh, maybe we, we find ourselves uh, just, just kind of submitting to the reign of sin again. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're like, you know, I, I've kind of tried to fix myself and it's not working. And slavery to sin can reveal itself in, in a myriad of ways. I think sometimes we might only think of it kind of in, in a couple different characteristics. But it can be an obsession with self. That might look like being the highest performing salesman in your office. It, it might look like an obsession with self that, that cares about you know, how much you accomplish or what you look like whenever you see yourself in the mirror. It could just kind of be a fear of others that leads to isolation. It says if I'm, if I'm really known by other people, they might see that uh, I'm a hypocrite or that I'm not who I say I am. So I'm just going to be fearful of others. This, this slavery to sin could lead you into, if maybe you have a religious background, into legalism where you're always trying to work yourself back to God. Or if you feel like you've messed up and you're like, well, I, I can't even pray right now or go to church. i got to fix all this other stuff in my life. i got to be, become more self-righteous before I can truly go to God. And here Paul says that slavery leads to death. But, but there is a submission to Christ that leads to life. In verse 19, he's going to say, you know what, this analogy is hard for us to hear, and we may not like it, but due to the human limitations that surround us, this is the best analogy that I have. He's saying this is the best way for you to understand just comprehensive loyalty to someone. Now, Roman slavery is different from the slavery that we often think about in our culture because Roman slavery was normally a Roman citizen who would voluntarily enter into a, a slavery contract that was much like an employment contract. It's becoming a lifelong servant of someone so that they would provide for all of your needs, everything that, that you needed to survive. So Paul says here this, this slavery, this servitude, will either be to sin in which it governs your entire life. That's, that's every person, wherever they come into the world. That's what Paul calls uh, this, this idea in Romans 3 that no one is good. We're totally depraved. He says those who trust in Christ, their slavery to sin is in the past tense. And now, now they belong to Christ. Your freedom is now in Christ to submit to him. Now, why is it good for us to reflect on the slavery of sin? Well, I think, for one, it, it helps us to have compassion for the lost. 
one of the most dangerous things uh, about slavery to sin is most people don't feel enslaved. They feel free. But in the same way that cattle move through a slaughterhouse and feel free because they've been given an abundance of grain and this ease of life, they don't realize that each step they take is drawing them closer to death. That we have compassion to, to reach those who don't know Christ with this message, that there's hope, that you can be set free from the slavery of sin. Two, it's important for us to realize this because understanding how bad a sin is shows how great the gospel of grace is, that Christ frees you from this, that God offers you great hope, that if you trust in him, you will be set free. It helps us to rejoice in this gospel message, that we once were enslaved and now we're set free, we get to follow Christ. And fourth, it's a reminder to not go back there. If you've been set free from that, don't run back to jealousy and lust and being judgmental or just this vicious cycle of uh, laziness that you know makes you feel worth it. Don't run back there if you've now been resurrected with Christ to walk in the newness of life. And so in verse 17, Paul says, okay, that's what once happened. Now this is what God has done to set you free in Christ. It says, but thanks be to God. He bursts out in praise that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He said that there was a moment in which you trusted in Christ. The Holy Spirit came into your life, changed you from the inside out. You became obedient to God, not because it was an obligation, but an obedience that was out of this motivation, this new motivation that you have received. Obedience from the heart because the Holy Spirit has given you a new heart. That you are now... Uh, you are now obedient from the heart to this new standard of teaching by which you are committed. Now, this is kind of a clunky way that verse 17 is worded, but I want you to see that we find a lot of truth in this passage if we're willing to do the work. Okay, so the word that he uses for standard here, whenever he says that, that you become obedient from the heart to this standard of teaching, that standard is like a mold that a blacksmith uses whenever they melt down a piece of metal and it's hot, it's liquefied, and then they pour it into a standard, a mold, a tupos, as it is in the Greek. And then whenever it cools, it now has a completely different shape. It looks completely different than it did before. Maybe some of the essential components are still the same, but its use is completely different. Its form is completely different. That's the word for standard there in Scripture. And Paul says that you are now obedient from the heart to this new standard of teaching, this new doctrine. The doctrine that although God is holy and you could never meet his standards, he sent his own son for you to obey in a way that you couldn't, to die in your place, to forgive your sins, to raise again, to offer you life. That is the doctrine. That is the teaching that is there. And then it says that this is a new standard of teaching by which you were committed. Now, I think at first glance we can say, oh, so like... I committed to that standard of teaching, and that made me obedient from the heart. But what I want you to see is that verb committed there is passive. It's not active. It's something that God has done to us, for us. It is not something that we do ourselves. Uh, to explain this better than I could, I want to read you a quote from Greek scholar Tom Schreiner. He says, the passive verb indicates that God has handed over believers to the mold of teaching that they have obeyed from the heart. The clumsy syntax, therefore, makes a point. God is the one who has delivered believers from the slavery of sin to the mold of teaching that they now embrace. 
And you're thinking, great. So what does all of this mean for me? What does this mean on a Tuesday afternoon? What does this mean as you're sitting in class or driving to work or getting ready for your day? Well, I want you to see that this joyful life of obedience, the hope for your progress in the faith and your growth in spiritual maturity is the fact that God has taken a personal interest in accomplishing this in you. That he completely took matters into his own hands. That God himself brings you to the moment that you become aware of your sin. Do you remember when that was? That God himself has melted you down through the recognition of his holiness and your sin against him. That he melts you down and then pours you into the mold of this new doctrine. That your life would be completely changed. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That through Christ's death and resurrection, you are now dead to the bondage of sin. That you are made alive in Christ. And now Christ has given you the Holy Spirit to walk in a new way. That you are now formed into a mold that believes the work of Christ and desires to live in a new way. That your sanctification is not just something that you have to will and work for. It is something that God is working in you to accomplish because he has done this. You've been transferred from obeying sin to now obeying Christ. The promise that was made to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 has become has come to pass in you. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, there will be a day in which you are free from trying to hit the standard of the law because the conviction the law will be written on your heart to obey God. That the Holy Spirit will cleanse you and come dwell inside you. That you will now have a new relationship to God in which you will want to walk in obedience to Him. Not just as a duty, but as a delight for every Christian. Now, it is a great delight to serve our Lord. And Paul communicates in verse 19. No, this isn't a perfect analogy. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He's saying that whatever you, however you behave reveals what you belong to. And he's saying the more that you sin, the more that you sin. And yet, whenever you're in Christ, the more that you obey, you grow in obedience and righteousness. And we've all experienced this. Now, we know that there's kind of this vicious cycle of sin that Paul is talking about here in which you sin and then you're like, well, I feel bad. How do I cope with that? And then maybe you do something that leads to something worse or uh, maybe, maybe you sin and you lash out to someone and uh, then you just kind of isolate from them and uh, then you become bitter toward them and it just kind of continues to grow and grow in this snowball effect. And then you're like, you know what, I'll do something about this. And so maybe you actually make some progress in this. And things turn out pretty good. And then you become prideful because you're like, hey, I fixed this whole situation. Or you try really hard and it doesn't work out. And then you just despair. And then you become even more bitter toward God. And so you're like, well, how do I deal with all this? Well, I'll escape. And so I'll run to more sin. And Paul's like, hey, don't you realize that whatever you sin, it leads to impurity and lawlessness. And then the more you sin, then just the more you sin to cover up the sin. He said, but 
the opposite is true too. Whenever you're walking in obedience to Christ, you're spending time in the Word, you're spending time with the Christian community, you're using your spiritual gifts, you're sharing the gospel. And I, I love walking with the God in this way. Those baby steps turn into running and not growing weary, recognizing that the Spirit of God is at work within you. And this is your sanctification, is exactly what he says in verse 19. Now, why is this so important for us? Because we each must choose who we will submit to, to sin or to Christ. And there's this just amazing scene at the end of the book of Joshua. God has brought his people into the promised land. We're jumping back to the Old Testament right now, but I think it, it really serves to provide an illustration of what's going on here. And they're in the promised land. Joshua gives his farewell speech, and he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. And the people of Israel say back to Joshua, We will serve the Lord. And he says, No, you won't. And it's like, oh, <laughs> like, how's that for a farewell speech, man? Like, not exactly motivational. And he, and he says in Joshua 24, 23, he says, If you will serve the Lord, go back to your homes and get rid of all your idols. And then obey the Lord with all your heart. Joshua was saying the same thing that Jesus said. You can't serve two masters. If you truly want to serve the Lord, don't just give them lip service. Give them your whole life. Don't be, say, I'm, I'm following God, but you know what? This, this, there's some cuffs right here that's just kind of this one little sin I want to hang on to. But I'm, I'm following the Lord. No, you can't be pulled in two directions. And Jesus said, come follow me. But he also said, pick up your cross and deny yourself. He had, he had no qualms about telling you that you would have to give things up to follow him. That there would be a yoke upon your neck in following Jesus. But how does he say it in Matthew 11? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound like the kind of master you want to submit to? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, true freedom is not found in the absence of a master, but in submitting to the master who is good. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, what does obedience from the heart actually look like? You're saying, I just need to know, how do I live as a Christian? Maybe you've only been a Christian for like six months. Or maybe you're just kind of looking at Christianity from the outside and you're saying, okay, if I'm justified through faith in Christ... Then what? Well, it's important to see that sanctification, that process of growth, looks different for everybody. Uh, we often say that not everybody starts in the same place and not everybody grows at the same pace. But every Christian changes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, biblical counselor David Pallison says that there are always five factors that are involved in a Christian's sanctification. So maybe just think, are these five factors involved in my life? What does it look like for me to grow in these ways? He says, constructive change occurs through the interplay of these five factors. God, scripture, other people, life circumstances, and the human heart. Think about that. God, scripture, other people, life circumstances, and the human heart. That's true. God initiates our sanctification, our salvation. He's at work through all of it. He's sovereign over it. His providence is laced throughout our entire life. What else? Scripture. For some of you, that might look like opening the YouVersion Bible app and just meditating on the verse of the day. For some of you, that might look like reading the Bible in a year. But for every person, God will use Scripture to bring about change in your life. He uses other people. Think about it. There are so many one another commands in Scripture. 
And you cannot live out the one another commands of Scripture in isolation. How are you supposed to love one another, rejoice one another, uh, serve one another if you're never with other people? You, you need that. One of the best ways to grow in patience or humility is to be around people that make you wait. Uh, to, to be exposed to someone who's better than you are at something and to say, I'm so, so glad for the gifts that you've been given. Other people, life circumstances. Now, I think this is a big one. I think for a long time, I only viewed this as suffering. But I want you to see that blessing in life is as much a moment, an opportunity for your sanctification as difficulty. Because think about it. You won't struggle with materialism maybe until you get that job where you're making double what you used to make. And now you have all this extra money to spend. It's like, oh, now this is actually a temptation. Or whenever you become really good at something, maybe pride wasn't an issue before, but now everybody's looking at you, patting on, patting you on the back. It's like, Man, that presentation was amazing. You're like, yeah, it was. No, blessing is also an opportunity for sanctification. A trial, whenever trial comes. I love the words in Job 42, where, I mean, Job has lost everything at the end of his life. He's had this conversation with the Lord, and he says, you know, God, for, for the entirety of my life, my ears have heard about you. I'd heard about your providence. I'd heard about your goodness. I'd heard about your patience. I'd heard about your justice. He said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Life circumstances bring about this understanding of who God is. And finally, the human heart. You have to take responsibility for this. You have to apply your justification to your life. Uh, you have to put yourself, you have to take your will and say, I'm going to submit to the word of God and the will of God because I believe that is what is best for me. And this happens in a million different ways. The second half of the book of Ephesians is really all about the different places that you're sanctified. In the church, in Christian community, in marriage, in parenting, in the workplace. You're, you're sanctified in a million different ways. You're sanctified in ministry. I mean, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 3, 7 this week where Paul says, hey, um, you know, I, I might have planted or watered, but ultimately it's God that gives the growth. So as you're leading Young Life or you're a missional community leader and the, this week comes up and the room is packed out, you don't say, man, I did such a good job promoting this this week. No, you say, to God be the glory. And whenever you're sitting there and you prepared, you worked hard hours and hours on this lesson and maybe two kids show up for campaigners and you're like, I was hoping there would be 10. It's a good reminder that God is the sovereign over that and he's still using that in your life. That everything in your life is about God sovereignly working out your sanctification. I also know that some people might say, okay, well, isn't grace just an excuse to, you know, to be disobedient and to not obey? Isn't grace just kind of like the initial, you know, uh, aspect of the Christian life that we need to be made right with God? But what does Titus 2 say? It defines grace for us. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So grace brings salvation. It's like, yeah, we know that. But what else does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That grace not only brings salvation, but also transformation. The next thing that I want you to see, the guiding principle, is that living for sin leads to death. And living in Christ is eternal life. Living in sin leads to death, but living in Christ is eternal life. Look with me at verse 20. 
It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me summarize what he says in verses 20 and 21. He says, hey, remember whenever you were just free to the law, you didn't care what God's law said? Now, aren't those the things that you are most ashamed of now? Like whenever you thought you were just free to do whatever you want, think back to the decisions you made, the coping mechanisms you had. Isn't that kind of you know, the part of your life where you feel like there's a walk-in closet full of skeletons and you're like, I cannot believe I did that. I can't believe I made those decisions. It's like, so you might have thought you were free to the law, but now it's actually brought a lot of shame. But think about in the same breath, whenever you submit yourself to righteousness, to obedience, verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. You're going to grow. You're going to experience joy in God, peace with God. Uh, you begin to grow and ultimately this proves that you genuinely have eternal life. And this is what verse 23 tells us. This is why so many of us have committed it to memory. For the wages of sin is death. The wage. Think about a wage. It's the paycheck you get. What you earn for sin against God is death. This is for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift that we receive. It's not a trophy that goes to uh, the person who is most moral in some competition. It's not a paycheck to be earned. It's not a reward you receive. No, it's a gift that is given to you by God. How? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pause for a second on that phrase, our Lord. How do you know that you have this gift of eternal life? Is Jesus your Lord? Are you submitting to him? Is he the one that you trust? Is your salvation and your relationship with him what you ultimately treasure, the thing that defines every other aspect of your life? You see, this free gift comes with no fine print, no expiration date. And if your eternity is secure in Christ, it frees you up to actually grow in sanctification. Author Milton Vincent puts it like this. He says, I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. He says, I never have to do anything to be made right with God. Jesus did it all. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. Knowing that salvation is a gift frees us up to pursue sanctification. This leads us to the fourth and final guiding principle. We now live by the Spirit. Let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Paul here leaves the analogy of slavery and then goes into the analogy of marriage. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law of the Jewish Christians, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
we ne- but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old of the written code. And he said, you know, in the same way that whenever someone is married, if they were to love two people and say, you know, I'm actually married to both of these people. Well, that can't be the case because there is a commitment. There is a covenant there. Uh, you can't have uh, dual solitary affections. But if your spouse dies, then you're free to marry someone else. And so in verse 4, Paul applies that to us. And he says, hey, your old self died that was once under the law. So now you are free to belong to another. You are free to make a covenant commitment to another. And who is it? He says, he who has been raised from the dead in verse 4, that you may now bear fruit for God. He says, you now serve in many of the same ways that are similar to the laws that were given in the Old Testament, those old commands. But you no longer serve under the written code. You now serve in a new way by the Spirit. It is the difference between a kid who has to wake up at 6 a.m. and drags themselves in, into the closet to get ready because they have to go to school versus the same kid that wakes up at 6 a.m. because it's Christmas morning. And they would run downstairs and open all their presents. The action is the exact same. And now the internal motivation is completely different. He says, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And it's the difference between a balloon that is filled with your own air that you just have to keep swatting to keep off the ground. And you feel obligated and guilty. So you're like, oh, I'll, do, I'll go to church and I'll serve some people and I'll give a little bit. And you're trying to keep that thing afloat. But imagine if you drained that balloon from your own air and put helium in it. Now what would happen? It would gradually rise up. Why is that? Because of an internal change that has taken place. The Christian that understands they're filled with the Spirit, that their identity is no longer about how much money they make or uh, how athletic they are. Whenever they find their identity in Christ, whenever they realize that the same message that saved them is now good news for the whole world, well, they want to talk about that in a missional community group with other people. They want to attend church and worship that God with fellow believers. They want to serve. They want to make God known to the world. The actions might look the exact same as someone who is living under the duty of the law, but the internal motivation has completely changed. And, and for people who say, well, okay, so this new way of the Spirit, is, it's completely different from living under the law. I would actually argue the Spirit demands more. And yet God provides everything he requires. The Old Testament law said, thou shalt not steal. And the new way of the Spirit says, hey, give sacrificially to those around you. And the Old Testament law says, don't bear false witness. And yet in Christ, the command is, you've received the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses to the end of the, war, to the, end of the earth. Go tell everybody. And the Old Testament command was, don't have idols. And now the New Testament command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, so what we see is that we're called to something far greater, and yet the Holy Spirit in us enables us to do it with great joy because we have been united to Christ. Let me help you. Maybe you're thinking, okay, this process is long. How can I grow in the Christian life? I've been disappointed and discouraged several times before. Let me encourage you with these things, that God is merciful and patient. God prepares a gradual process called sanctification for your growth that assumes that you will occasionally get it wrong and that you will need to run back again and again to the fountain of his mercy. And he promises that his mercy will be new for you every single morning. It will be exactly what you need. King David, 
the adulterer and the murderer wrote in Psalm 23, the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life. The patient mercy of God is woven throughout your entire process of sanctification. Walk in the newness of life. Live this out. I want you to understand that God is holy. And because God is holy, you can come to him as you are. That's the invitation. But you won't stay as you are. Romans 1.16 describes the gospel message as the power of God to change us. You can't encounter that kind of power and just live the same your whole life. It will truly change you. The Holy Spirit will make you holy. You've been melted down and remolded to be obedient to the Lord. God dwells among his people. That's so encouraging. I mean, think about it. It is scandalous to us whenever we read the gospels and the Son of God has left his throne, taken on flesh. He's dwelling among sinful people so much that the religious leaders can't stand the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is sharing bread around a dinner table with sinners and tax collectors. And what's even more unbelievable is that God in his sovereign mercy and grace has placed his Holy Spirit within us. If the incarnation is the declaration that God is with us, then indwelling with the Holy Spirit is the declaration that God is within us. That he's come to dwell within sinners to change us from the inside out and to draw us to himself. That's amazing. God provides everything we need. You see, we don't need to add to the gospel. We need to grow deeper in it. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So what is sanctification? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we with unveiled face behold the glory of God in Christ. So yes, the journey is often difficult, but the destination is worth it. Let's pray.